It'd marketing you would When I was a young lawyer, every Friday, I'd have a lunch sent up with somebody, Kissimmee, Sanford, Lake County, whatever. I'd park my car and I cold called law firms until three o'clock in the afternoon. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Happy New Year, and welcome to Season 2 of Wisdom on Trial. Uh, I'm so excited about uh, this year and continuing to explore uh, people that I find interesting and filled with wisdom. I like uh, the diversity of the people that I've spoken to, and I'm, uh, I'm fired up about this year. I've already recorded most of the interviews, including with former Florida Supreme Court Justice Barbara Periente, with 4th District Court of Appeals Judge Fred Hazuri, with uh, what I would consider to be an, an A-list mediator and Steve Sawicki and, and many others. Our first guest is uh, John Morgan, and I am confident if you were listening to this, uh, you know who John Morgan is. Um, I had the chance to talk to John for probably two hours in his office one night. I was really surprised at just how transparent he was, and I really believe that for any person listening to this, there will be something for you. You may not uh, take away everything, but there will be something for you. Enjoy. I'm here today with uh, John Morgan. I have known uh, John since I was 24 years old, and it's been uh, uh, fun to watch you grow and thrive and flourish, and uh, your successes are almost mind-boggling as we look at them today with 50 offices, 500 lawyers, uh, successful businesses, uh, banks, uh, the constitutional amendment, the numbers of verdicts that you've gotten if you really try to look at them in total. I, I have to ask this question. Why is it that you have been so successful so many times? I think that part of the secret to my success has been I like to share the risk and the gain. I don't have many things in my life that I've done by myself. A lot of people are, you know, lone wolves and they just do their own thing. I like to celebrate victory and I like to cry about defeat, but I like to do it with people. And yes. So what I have found that by having all of these partners in all these ventures, it has allowed me to do more ventures. It's allowed me to make more pies. And I'm more interested in having lots of slivers of lots of pies instead of just having one pie. Yeah, that's good. Well, let, let me then ask this question. How do you uh, select good business partners? Because I would presume over the years and all the different endeavors you've done, you got some that are, you know, great business partners and some that have been failed. What, what are the, the questions you would ask or the advice you would give in selecting a quality, reliable business partner? Well, one of the th questions I ask everybody is I'll say, what do you love to do? When people say they love to golf, that scares me <laughs> for a minute. And then I ask a follow-up question. I said, how good a golfer are you? When they say they're a scratch, I decide I don't want them around. Because if they spend that much time becoming a scratch golfer, 
they can't give me the time I need. I ask people what time they get up in the morning. That's also a good question. I like people that are up and at them. Uh, and then I like to ask people what they do with their lives. And I tend to like to have people whose lives are about their work and their family. I don't like the people who don't have that family. I like people with a big time commitment to their their family, their, their real family. Yes. What are the, for you, the biggest red flags when, when you have something, they look like a good business partner, looks like a good opportunity. What are some of the, the red flags other than the obvious, you know, a blatantly dishonest person, but red flag number one is job history. If they jump around, they're going to jump around. The, the past is the best predictor of the future. So when I see people who've been in a lot of places in a few amount of years, I don't waste my time with that person. That, that's a red flag. But you know, it's really hard to tell because, you know, I've had people who had all of what you would think would have been the winner within. They look good. They were clever, they were funny, they were smart. But the thing you can never see, very hard to see, is you can't see lazy. Yes. And then a lot of times they're great athletes too. And you're like, well, my God, he he, he likes to win. She likes played to, college she played sports. College sports. Yes. He's a winner. And you think that's going to give you, and then you find out that they're lazy. And what I call it, the mystery, is that, that that person who has what I call unrealized potential that is never realized. And they should be the star of the whole show. But what they don't have at their core is a work ethic. And it's very, very hard to see in a job interview. Yes. It, to use... Uh one of your books, which says you can't teach hungry, which was a great book and really made sense. And to most people that read it, that practice litigation law and trial law, right. the second they read the title, they realized this is true. You can teach good writing, you can yeah. teach advocacy, but hunger, you can't really teach. How do you decipher when you're hiring or you're assembling a team? I try to stay away from people who grew up with, you know, a silver spoon stuck in one of their uh, orifices. I, I find that, I find poor people tend to be hungrier than rich people. Not a universal rule, but there's some... Not a some, universal rule, yeah. but there is something about the blue collar, the person who suffered, the person who struggled, the person who was desperate. And like you say, it is not universal, it's not absolute, that's not the case. But by and large, uh, when you walk around all of my offices, there's a commonality of the people, especially the ones, and it's not that they were, you know, real poor, but they were not, they were nowhere near upper middle class. Rather than think it, I'm going to say it. So I, I think of your kids, okay, um, who clearly uh, grew up on the uh, far side of the bell curve economically, um, who, according to all accounts, are hungry, who are not satisfied with uh, mediocrity in the practice of law or business as a parent. 
How did you cultivate hungry kids? Well, my son Matthew told me that later in life what he's going to do is he's going to write a book called You Can Teach Hungry, and it's going to be by Matt Morgan. What you have to do, I think, which I did is, you, you know, when you were poor and then you made money, you really were very happy about it. And then I'd go to the schools and I'd see people, I'd see kids driving BMWs and Mercedes because the parents had had, but that's not, I didn't, I didn't give my kids great cars. And I didn't give my kids, the, you know, they were talking about going to Duke and stuff like that. I'm like, if you want to go there, you're going to borrow the money. You're, you're, you can go to Florida for free. I never gave them great cars. They would take like my wife's seven, eight-year-old Navigator. Because you know that every one of them, all four of them, will wreck that car at some <laughs> point in time. That's just going to happen. So why wreck That's a brand new Mercedes? That's not what I want to hear today when I have teenage kids. I'm just, I can predict the future. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yes. And so I made them do that. I always made them have a job. I've always made them have a job. When they, you know, one time they came home, they said, you know, I said, you all got to get your jobs for Christmas. And they said, nobody at Bishop Moore is working. I said, well, I know that's not true. And Mike said, well, it is true. I said, it's not true, and it is true. And back and forth, I said, the reason I know it's not true is you all are working. Any uh, industry you try to push them in when they were younger? Uh, well, we had the traction out at Wonder. Uh, they worked at WonderWorks. They didn't want to work out there. But I said, look, here's the good news. We own it, so you can work from 8 to 5, or you can work from 12 to 9, or you can work from <laughs> 5 to 2. But you are going to work 40 hours, and you don't have to work Christmas Day. And that's an advantage. You don't have to work Christmas Eve night, but you're going to work 40 hours. And you just have to do that. I was, uh, I drug tested them. Sometimes they passed, sometimes they failed. I didn't, I wasn't never going to let that, I was never going to let that get out of hand. You know, Matthew's a surfer, so you know if you're surfing, you're smoking. It's a matter of law. It's It's just if so, fact so. (laughs) You have to stay vigilant with these kids. You have to remember that your children are one friend away from total disaster, one friend away. That's not my rule, Bill McBride told me that. I never forgot it. All the parties were at my house. When we had parties at my house and the kids were there, I had policemen standing next to the bar. And so I had a lot of invitations to socialize, but my weekends were Friday, we left and went to the beach and we stayed there as a unit for 72 hours unless we were back in Lake Mary, Sanford playing sports. So my social world was my children. It's about time, but it's also about values. They lived with me, they rode with me, they flew with me, they lived in my houses, they took vacations with me. You can't undo, you can't stop that. But you can demand that they work, that they respect, and the only thing I ever tell them, that I ever told them, is that I don't care what you are, I just want you to be compassionate Mm. to other people. I want you never to be, I, I never want you all to be, cross with each other because so nobody's going I got four brothers and sisters nobody's ever going to love you like them and so so far you know so so far so good yeah the the how they see other people for me critical has been I looked at my kids early on I'm like I, I can tolerate a lot of things the one thing I can't tolerate is if you look down at anybody ever it's just it's so yeah Matt was a real, Matt was me. a really good alley one time I told Matt he's he remembers it to this day I said I want to take you to dinner and we went to dinner and I said I want to tell you Matt I said I'm really not liking the way you're turning out and uh, 
He says, why? I said, you, you're, you come off as an arrogant asshole. And I said, you're the type of guy that I just wanted to beat the shit out of for general purposes when I was in <laughs> high school. And you, you have no humility, and you're very full of yourself, and there's, there's, there's something about you. He will tell you this day, that dinner... And we had a great dinner. We yes. went to Del Frisco's. We had, it wasn't a bad day. It was just, I said, but I felt like I had to bring you out to tell you this because I love you so much and you have so much to offer. Matt became probably the sweetest, mm-hmm. kindest, most compassionate. And he will tell you that that dinner was a seminal moment in his life. Yeah, I hear you got to be willing to speak the, the hard truth and be bold about it. Because if you love them, you want them to be the best, and if you don't, if you if you don't, if you hold that back and you know it, you're not you're not doing your job as a father. How many years have you been married? Uh, Thirty-seven years. Thirty-seven years, and uh, I'm sure Ultima is an incredible woman. It's amazing just knowing the the um, the highs and the lows of growing a business like this. You, that you've stayed married. I mean, just being transparent. Well, because look, the way I got my business, I lived in union halls. I lived in you know pool halls and dive bars, and I built this. I built the business, you know, out in the streets. I mean, I, if there was a union meeting, I was there. Then they we went drinking after the union meeting, and uh, yeah, so it was you know it was that kind of you know and I you know, but on the other hand. We're both Catholic, you know. I'm I'm lucky that she's a Catholic. One time I said to her, it was like ten years or fifteen years, and I said, and she's very Catholic. And I said, would you? Kind of Catholic. I'm kind of Catholic. I'm. She's very Catholic. I'm not as. I said, would you like to renew our vows? You know, I was trying to. I really didn't care. I was just trying to butter her up. (laughs) And uh, she said, uh, no. I said, you don't want to renew our vows? She goes, no. I said, why not? She said, John, right now, this marriage is totally annullable. If I validate this marriage and recommit, <laughs> I will lose my annulment. Should I have an annulment? She wanted to hold on to that insurance just Listen, in case. She's a lawyer. She's a lawyer. She wanted the annulment. What's been the key to 35 years of, of marriage? Well, first of all, you know, I, I, had, to, I had to be married to somebody very, very smart. I mean, this girl is Phi Beta Kappa. She scored the, yes. she could have gone to Harvard Law School. She was accepted to medical schools. She scored, you know, off the chart, everything she did. And she's very, very smart. Now that's good and bad. It's bad because she forgets she nothing. She gets you. And she gets me and forgets nothing. And you know, you can't, she does not suffer fools and you can't fool her. But on the other hand, I would not have wanted, you know, somebody just ditzy and, you know, she has been a tremendous partner to when you can come home and sit down and hard things and big things and complicated things and say to her, here's where we are, here's what I got, what do you think? And I, I want her advice. When I used to write ads, I mean, every ad that we've ever done, I've written every ad all these years. If you tell me she wrote for the people. She did not write for the people, but it's been there to say yes and no. Sometimes I'll do an ad and she's like, no, no. But the secret really is just remember, look, every marriage, 
Are you married? Same girl? The whole High time? school girlfriend. Okay. It, it, it's not normal. It's not natural. There's very few animals in the whole world that are monogamous. There's like 10 of them. Swans, by the way, gorillas. It, it's a very hard deal because you irritate people. You, you get on each other's nerves. But what I've said a long time ago is, listen, I would rather be married to the crazy I know than the crazy I don't know because at the end of the day, I've seen all our friends, I've seen our friends get remarried. I've seen them trade in the old wife for the new wife. And the truth is we're all crazy. Yes. No matter who you get, there's going to be crazy. And I've now figured out her crazy and she's figured out my crazy. And we have this commonality, which is we have these four children that are our entire life. I mean, the one thing that we agree on, no matter what, is that we love those four to the distraction of everything else. And uh, so, look, it's a marriage. It, it's there's ups, there's downs, there's fights, but we made it. It's been good. We've never we've, we've never even talked about really ever talked about a divorce. I think that's a key. I think when, when she has be- said she has said I'll take half of everything you have because she knows that pisses me off when she says that. But it would only be give or take three hundred and twenty five million dollars <laughs> or half somewhere. Let me uh, ask you in it seems if you look at the ventures that you've done, while it's easy to look at um Morgan and Morgan or ForThePeople.com or different things and say, of course, that's a winning formula when you're the early adopter in the, in the TV advertisement or the advertisement. Right. We could look at stuff now in retrospect and say very low risk. Uh, look at WonderWorks as an example, your attraction now and say, of course, that would work. Without going through... Uh, everything which project and you can even include the constitutional amendment whatever in life did you face where you you could have said yes or no where you felt like this is the biggest risk i didn't feel like morgan and morgan was because before i started morgan and morgan i was a lawyer at a firm called uh, billings morgan and Kay. i'm not the i'm the more i left early and started a law firm with two other people and they, I wanted X amount of dollars. They told me I was going to get less than X. And I told them, you know, and I'd only been out for two and a half years. I was never worried about the law because I knew I was a superstar in that arena, especially in getting business. You know, I, I lived in those union halls. I lived, you know, I mean, I brought in, forget advertising. I brought in business, lots yeah. of business. Even if you had done guerrilla I did marketing. Listen, when I was a young lawyer, every Friday, I'd have a lunch set up with somebody, Kissimmee, Sanford, Lake County, whatever. I'd park my car and I cold called law firms until three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'd walk in and I'd say, my name is John Morgan. I just want to introduce myself and talk to you. And I would call on people like a brush salesman. I want to stay here, and I'll come back to the rest thing, because I found that lawyers, the people that are drawn to be litigators, trial lawyers, a lot of that, they're petrified of the concept of cold calling someone. Like it's, it's. You would think that it was a life or death situation. But I didn't see before I went to law school. I sold yellow pages. I was very successful selling yellow pages. I, made I bet a lot you of money. were. 
So when I got out, I thought, you know, I'm a good. Like one time, I pull into a guy named Abbott Herring. He was a, he'd been the state attorney. I pull into his office in Sanford. I said, "Who do you send your cases to?" He said, "We used to send them to Matthews, but they they fucked us on a referral fee." And he said, "We've been keeping them ourselves." And he calls his son. And he goes, "How many do we have?" And he says, 50 or 60. I drove away. I had a Nissan Maxima. I drove away with 60 files in my car yeah. from Abbott Herring. And then they started sending me everything. That's a good call. Do you ever now, do you yeah, ever do yeah. any cold calling? Yeah. Well, if I, I don't not knock on doors like that, but but yes, I do. I ask for business all How the time. How do you overcome the, the fear of rejection? I have no fear of rejection because... Is like I told my lawyers today in the meeting today, I can truly say this. If you hire Morgan & Morgan, you've just made the best decision in your life. I believe that. And I don't believe it just out of the... I believe because look at my verdicts. Look at all my verdicts. Look at everything we do every single day. We're doing things that no other firm in, in the state of Florida, America is doing. Getting real verdicts, settling real cases. So I feel like, you know that really, and you're one of them, David, I don't mean to say this, but there's very few lawyers that do what we do. And so I've, I'm not embarrassed about asking to help somebody. So the confidence in the cold call is when you're cold calling, you're believing, I'm, believing I'm fixing your problem. I, I I'm, know it's true because yeah, the verdicts, yeah. listen, there's a lot of things that don't lie. Lots of verdicts. You cannot make that up. Yeah. Let me now go to the risk question. Biggest risk you've taken in your professional life where it could have been south and you could have had massive egg on your face. When I built the Wonderworks, it was the upside down house that I built when I was young. And I had an idea to build it. I thought I had these little kids and I'd go to science centers and they were shit. And nobody liked them, and I thought, what if you had what if you had something where it was very interactive, and you kind of made it like a nightclub, and then somebody brought me this idea about turning the house upside down, and that was a that was an that was one that could have been really bad really fast, because it was millions and millions of dollars. That you know, and if it if it fails. But on the other hand, it's, it's, it's almost like my personality. I, I didn't build a, a vanilla box. I built a mansion turned upside down with steam coming out of the pipes. And that was probably the biggest risk because there was really no, you know, the banks that I've started, we could have been a mediocre bank. The, the, some of the things I've started, I could have like, you know, just kind of hid like it didn't happen. But that was public. It was a big building. Oh. I loved, I heard you talk where you said, well, if it didn't work out, uh, you you considered, I think it was jokingly, yeah. what the use of the building could have been. Yeah. I said, I said, I guess I could have made it my law office and I could have done my commercials where I walk out and go, if you've been in an accident and your life's been turned upside down, that could be my law office. <laughs> but there was really no secondary use for that building. Yeah. So how were you able to get to the point where what questions enabled you to kind of tilt over to, I'm going to go for this, even though it's not a sure thing? Well, when you're younger, you're stupid. You don't, you don't appreciate <laughs> That may risk. be your next book. Yeah, when you're younger, you're stupid. you're stupid. But you don't appreciate risk. 
I did it in a way I raised money. So what I did is I, I did a limited partnership, uh, and the deal was we we're going to give them a 10% return on their money, and then after they got all their money back, we we're going to split 50-50. So I took the risk off the table for myself because financially I had money in it, but it wouldn't have ruined me. We all would have lost. So in that sense, I didn't have the financial down downside. It, it seems like you've done that in many ways with your firm. Like you've diversified the risk with all the different practice areas, right. with all the different offices in different states, with different tort law. Exactly. And to take, you know, let the risk go off. If, you know, tort reform happens here, it doesn't necessarily happen there. I'm expanding hard into California. You know, I tell people, I say, California is a country. It's not a state. It's a country. And so I like, I like to have my risk weighted. I don't like to have all my eggs in one basket. I like to go back to those pies. I call it, I like to have lots and lots and lots of slivers of lots and lots and lots of pies. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Beyond the successes, if you'd be willing to, what what would you consider to be the greatest failure? And I ask not to not to find out the failure, but really we often learn more from how people walk through failure um, than how they walk through success. Well, look, I've had failures inside the firm, and I've had failures outside of the firm. And in my one book, I write, "Failure is your friend." Failure is a great thing if you use it as an asset what most people do with failure is they say i'll never do that again they don't look at it and go what what happened here when you go through my firm there we have practice areas all throughout this firm that that were failures we had a guy doing social security and he he was a magical thinker and before we got rid of him we were like down 12 million dollars we didn't stop doing it. We came in and reloaded and saw what was happening. And it wasn't the idea that was wrong. It was him. And the concept was right. And so now, you know, we make $8 million a year net doing Social Security work. We had uh, a, a mass tort division that could have been so much more. But we had the guy was good, a sweet guy, well-intentioned, but he was a smaller thinker. And we moved him out and moved somebody else in. And you go through my wage and hour. I had a lot of these businesses, my business trial group. I had a lifetime friend. He came in, but he was not the guy. And now that practice area is here. So I didn't walk away from the ideas. I walked away from the people, mm. the execution. So it seems like the first question is, is the reason this failure is happening because this was a bad idea or is it the wrong exactly. person leading the idea? Well, you know it was a good idea because you thought it was a good idea at the, pl- at the <laughs> first time. And first time, you, I have a rule of thumb and it goes like this. If the answer is not a hard yes, the answer is no. And that's, that saves you a lot of time. If the answer is not a hard yes, the answer is no. When I thought about Social Security, it was a hard yes. Why? It dovetails into my business. It's doing great work for people who are really injured. These people become feeders for you later. Yes. They become. It, it was. It was a hard yes. Let Let's get to uh, a failure that uh, affected you. So, like what I hear on those, not meaning to minimize those, is there? It's a business 
venture that didn't quite play out the way you wanted. But I know there's no way as passionate as you are about stuff, things, issues, that there hasn't been something that hurt you to the core where you felt like, uh, I don't like how this is turning out. With, you can share it with me or not, but well, no, but, I, I don't. I'm, I'll, I know, I know all of my failures better than I know my successes. I, I think the big one I had is I had this grand idea to build uh, another attraction called, and I was going to call it the, the the history of crime and punishment. And I built it in Washington D.C. and I had investors, and it was phenomenal. It was fabulous. But I went to D.C. because I heard the spy museum was doing well. I went in a building. I didn't have a building. I didn't have a facade. I paid too much rent. And basically, I didn't lose money there, but I made no money. But it, was, but it cost me a lot to build it. I was filming America's Most Wanted in the, in the building. And at the end of the day, the building, if I didn't do a certain amount of money, the building could take my lease from me. And they came in and said, we're going to take your lease. And I, and, and I don't suppose you like somebody saying that to you. No, I was like, you know, who the fuck do you think you... I mean, I was paying the rent. Yes. They, by the way, that was years ago. They've still not rented the building. So anyway, that happened, but it was in my mind, the inside, the guts was so good. And I was still making money, even with the high rent. And so what I did, I said, here's, what I, here, here's all the mistakes I made. I went to the wrong city. I didn't have a facade. I had a city that was tough to deal with. And so, but it wouldn't leave me. So I took all, the, I took the guts of the I took the guts of the attraction, and I went to Pigeon Forge, a tourist town, where I had another Wonderworks. And I said, I'm not going to call it the history of crime and punishment. I'm going to call it Alcatraz East. And I put everything, everything I had is the exact same stuff back in it. And I didn't use anybody's money. I put all my money in it. It's one of the biggest successes of my life. It, it sounds, what, what I'm getting from that is you really do learn from the mistakes. I, I remember uh, years ago hearing about your annual uh, planning process, and I'd, I'd love for you to, you know, generally, you're in a different season of life than no most question. people. So to translate the process, if you'd kind of share the planning process, but but ultimately visualize people who are not in the same season what the, the the big ideas of the process that they could walk away with what what I do and I got it from Bill Gates is once a year he goes off and thinks by himself for a week during the year leading up to that he collects all sorts of things he wants to take on that week articles this and this and this I go off for a week by myself and during that week, I take all the materials that I've been accumulating for the year, and it's just me and this material and my thoughts and long walks on the beach. And during those times, I write ads, I do things I've been talking about, but I let it all gel. And then during that week, I decide what my three goals are for the next year. That I, Those are going to be my goals. And... There's the, what I call the big, hairy, audacious goal. That doesn't come along very often. That's one that's like, you know, once in a lifetime or twice in a lifetime. But three big goals. Like, you know, a goal for, you know, this year it didn't happen, but it's going to happen is I wanted to build another Wonderworks in Branson, Missouri. It was supposed to open in December. It's going to open in February. So I basically give myself we'll give you a, I'll give, I'll give a couple months. 
how often do you look at those? So you you do the planning process. Do you write out the goals? I write them. I write. I've, all, I've got I've got uh, notebooks with the goals for my whole life, all in this one notebook. How often do you look at it uh, throughout the year? I look at it all the time throughout the year, and I look at it. I look retrospectively all the time, and I can tell you, I've always I think I've always got my goals. If you only have three goals, that's not hard to do. I mean, you can everybody can do three things. Uh, you have uh, always struck me as somebody who doesn't uh, uh, think of uh, big ideas alone, that you actually do them. And like when I think of oftentimes your successes, it's because lots of people have great ideas. Lots of people have big visions, but rarely do people have the the fortitude to say, you know what, I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to do it. I, I heard um, in the last talk that you gave, you talked about the difference between visionaries and vision makers. Right? Can you share that? Yeah, everybody's a visionary. We all have these great ideas. I mean, we've all had these incredible ideas. But when it comes time to pull the trigger, most people don't. The way that I'm built, once something gets in my head, I can't get it out. And and one of the fears I have, you say, you know, you're in a season of time. One of my fears is, as I still have things in my head that I may die and never got out. I'm in a race to get them out. And then you start thinking, is it worth it now at this point in time? I mean, am I going to get to see it? And uh, But I basically decide, you know, if it's in my head, like those books that I had, that was I had to get them out. The, the Alcatraz East, I had, to, I had to do the crime museum, then I had to, get, I had to come back and get redemption. Uh, the Google Law Firm that I talked about when you came to see me in New York, that was something that would not leave me. I become obsessed with it in my head because I'm so sure that it's a hard yes. And, it, and until I get it out, I cannot rest. It's, when it's ruminating up in my head, I cannot rest. So, so I'm going to add for the next time you do a talk and you got visionaries and vision makers, there, there's, in my mind, the trilogy would be then there's vision breakers. You know, they're the things that they're, they're busting your visions out. What are some of the things that you've seen that could have been vision breakers or vision busters that you've plowed through, but you're aware these are the kinds of things that, that quash out good vision? Well, there, there's all sorts of things that, that try to break your vision. I mean, there's people who are jealous, there's people who are envious, there's people who, you know, there's people who are just scared. You know, when, when Colin and Gilbert were my partners, they wanted to close uh, Jacksonville, Fort Myers, because we were we were feeding it with the money from Orlando and Tampa. They didn't have much. They didn't have that big of ownership, but they were like on my ass constantly to close Fort Myers in Naples. And I just came in in 2003. And I said, "Look, I got a better idea. Why don't y'all just let me buy you out? You don't have to worry about it." Well, guess what? Uh, those two cities are going to make a pile of money this year and next year and the year after so I just instead of closing them I closed those two guys and I let them stay on as employees for a while and then they decided to go start their own thing and I and that's great because I, I mean I was I was very good friends with those guys they just they you were, all built a great business we together. built a great business and but they were vision 
breakers. They were they were stopping me. So so I'll I'll put the first category is vision breakers can be people that have smaller visions than you have. They want to keep the money now. They don't yeah. they don't want to they don't want to double down for the next So one. then a vision breaker could be short-term thinking. Yes, they want the money now. They say we've made it, it's all I need. And that that can be that. They can be the vision maker breaker can be the person who can't do it themselves because they know they can't do it themselves and they don't want you to do it. So they they try to talk you out of being great. Because they know they can't be great. And that's why they're envious and covetous and would rather see a stranger win the lottery than their own brother and sister because they they, they can't do it. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about haters. And, and I had it down as a, the people that hate. How do you deal with the haters? I mean. Look, so you ask a lot of people to help you, you know, like, you know, raising money for political candidates. Sometimes I call people and they're like, you know, I'm more worried about you. Than, than the legislature, because they see me as a challenge. They see me as a problem. I see competition as a great asset that should be embraced because it can make you better. Yes. It can make you better. Yes. And so they're not really hating me. They're hating themselves. They're self-loathing. All these lawyers in our profession, they call themselves trial lawyers. Do you know how many of those people are trial lawyers? Do you know how many trial lawyers never go to trial? Do you know how many trial lawyers are really nothing but adjusters with a law license? And they don't like that because we all know who they are. I just want to stay out of your crosshairs. No, but it's, there's enough for all of us. But you guys really go to trial. And look, it's a small world. And you know who, you know who knows it better than anybody? Allstate, State Farm. That's what they do for a living. They crunch numbers. They draw a certain lawyer. They go, we're going to be able to settle this case for $3,000. They draw us. They say, we're going to pay $250,000. So haters are usually people who are self-loathing because, because they, don't, they don't have the will to be great. And so I never looked at them as hating me. They want to say it's me. You know, He's on TV and he's demeaning the profession. I mean, whatever they want to say. But... It's never bothered me because I'm just glad they don't have the guts to do what I do. <laughs> Enjoyed that interview with John. Uh, I did as well. There is a second uh, part of that that we'll try to uh, share at some point throughout the year. Uh, for 2020, uh, I hope you'll stay in touch and give me ideas on people you think would be uh, helpful to interview. Uh, they can be in-state or uh, out-of-state. The technology is crazy. But please just send me any feedback you have at dave at pkblawfirm.com. Uh, for 2020, my uh, personal word, the word I'm choosing to kind of cling to for the year, uh, is momentum and I'm trying to keep momentum in all of the areas of my life uh, my marriage my parenting my my health my uh, spiritual journey my friendships my business uh, all those areas and so I hope that encourages someone to just keep momentum going on what I'm uh, remembering as I'm thinking about the start of this year is that sustainable momentum, sustainable movement um, ultimately happens through uh, consistent moments throughout the year. Uh, it's not just one moment at the beginning of the year, 
but sustainable momentum, meaning continuing movement, happens by uh, a series of events that we choose to keep moving throughout the year. And so um, that's kind of uh, my goal this year is to just keep momentum in every area, including this podcast. So I hope you enjoyed it and we will be back soon.